Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. And we're so glad to have you back here with us again today. Chava, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm trying to think of how I am. Um, not much has changed. I got a permanent position at work, so that was good. Oh, awesome. Yeah, thanks. I know as someone who formerly worked at where you now work in a very, <laughs> very far away part of it, uh, that that's the usual path that they hire you temporary just to make sure you're legit. And then they're like, yay, indeterminate. Yes, it was it was pretty great. I um, it, it got a little sped up because of like, I, I just expressed interest in another job. And then they were like, ah, <laughs> um, it was pretty cute. Um, yeah. how about you? Your, your whole life is flippied. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah, I had a big change. Uh, I left like a, a wonderful job that I love with like really kind, wonderful people to take like a big swing at a, at a really great opportunity. And I, I think I made the right move. Um, but it's, um, it's a lot of work and a lot of learning and like really exciting, but also, like a big new challenge in a, in a way that I hadn't felt for like a number of years now. So, um, I definitely feel like I'm in like a time of transition. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, like people sort of like expect us to like say something about what was going on in the world. Cause sometimes we do, I don't know. I think the last thing anyone needs right now is like, like our hot take on the situation in Israel and Palestine. Um, and I have some feelings like anger towards those who stoked the flames of this and sadness because I am someone who abhors violence and war and their horrific cost and isolation because I think it's really hard to have nuanced conversations about this. And to that end, I think that is about as much as I want to say on air. Yeah, it's it's been a difficult few weeks. Um. So this month we're talking about conversion, and I think it's really important to give voice to people who've had this experience because uh, neither Chava nor I have had this experience. So we're going to highlight a couple of different voices throughout the episode. Uh, this first one is someone uh, listeners might remember, Jen Viev Cohen, who was our science officer on the uh, episode on gender. So here's Jen Viev. I probably shouldn't speak for your wife, especially when she's sitting in the room, but I'm pretty sure she still would have married you even if you didn't convert. Yes, it was definitely not an expectation on me. From Ottawa, but we moved to a smaller town called Van Cleek Hill, and oh, I did not know any Jews. My mom converted to Islam before I converted to Judaism. And when we first started thinking about looking at like the conversion course like when we first started to look at it it was kind of like well you know it would just be really interesting and it would be good for us to both kind of take and just see where we're at but like really quickly I was like no this is this is definitely what I'm going to be doing this is definitely what I'm going to be doing and especially with those recurring moments of like those emotions and crying at synagogue good crying at synagogue and it was it definitely turned into a this is the right thing to do instead of this is an easy thing to do wait pearl and jenny were in the same room as you uh busted no i actually recycled that audio from another project two years ago 
Josh. <laughs> I believe in recycling. And, and Jen, we have said we could use it again. <laughs> you believe in recycling. This is exactly what that means. So we had two episodes this month, the bonding from Next Gen, and you are cordially invited. Why don't we start with the bonding? Because I totally goofed this. <laughs> so in my head, and I would like to emphasize that only in my head, there is an episode of Star Trek about a kid whose parents died and who's seeing visions of a creepy little girl. And then he tries to imitate Data to deal with his feelings, but eventually like embraces Klingon culture and joins the House of Moog. And I thought like, wow, this episode would be such a good way to distinguish like being welcomed into a community versus trying to appropriate it and like talking about identity and aliens who can turn into like weird, creepy little girls. And then it turns out that actually that is not an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> it is three different episodes of Star Trek, which are um, the bonding, which is the wharf one, the uh, hero worship, which is the imitating data one and imaginary friend which is the creepy little girl one. And they're all not so memorable. And two of them have a creepy imaginary alien pretending to be per a human. And two of them have a dead mom. And two of them have like weird 80s views on parenting. And I somehow smushed them all in my head <laughs> into like one passable episode. This gives you an insight into how these episodes are structured. <laughs> Josh but, but is I like, oh, remember that episode? <laughs> I do have some really quick takeaways, and, and I know that you ended up not watching the episode, and that's good, because it's not a very good episode. I mean, I've um, seen it, but I didn't rewatch it for this, no. <laughs> Worf has a Uritzite candle uh, that he puts out with his little his little Klingon sword. Not the big one, the little, the little knife. Send your letters if you'd like to correct me on what the name of the little knife is. Picard makes really good points that it's totally immoral to have children on the Enterprise, especially when it goes into combat. There's so much 80s after-school special pseudo-psychiatric nonsense that the episode is almost completely unwatchable. <laughs> and then finally, they talk about something called the Koinonian Wars. And this really should be a matter for our sister show, uh, Star Trek and the Christians. But <laughs> koinonia is a Greek word that sort of means like fellowship or communion. And it has like a whole like Christian theological implication that I don't really understand. So check out our sister show, Star Trek and the Christians, which, which isn't real. Don't go look for that. Koinonia actually also is like a Greek loan word into Hebrew, but like post-biblical Hebrew, but it gets used to mean like a, like an agreement to um, to steal money from your business partners. I don't know how they got that from the Greek, and I don't think it had <laughs> anything to do with the episode. <laughs> All right, that's enough of the bonding. <laughs> so, should we talk about the DS9 episode? I wonder if we want to do that or go to Reb Alert. Ooh, yeah, I think we should go to Reb Alert because we learn about conversion in it. Belay that order, number one. Red Alert. <laughs> Our guest today is someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. Jakob Fruchter is the Director of Community Building and Spiritual Engagement at my home community, Batsetta Congregation. And Jakob's a real fixture in Midtown and Downtown Toronto Jewish spaces. He previously served as the spiritual leader of the Annex Shul, and before that he worked for Hillel Canada. Uh, when there's something interesting, innovative happening in Jewish spaces in Toronto, more often than not, Jakob's got a hand in it. We're so happy to have you here, Jakob. Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. 
Thank you very much. Certainly um, a space I never would have thought that I would be uh, participating in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're happy to have you. So if you never thought you'd participate, tell us a little bit about your Star Trek experience. Oh, my. I, I, um, I think maybe like in high school, I would watch once in a while an episode. I guess probably it was like Deep Space Nine maybe came out around then. And I would watch a very, very little bit of it probably when there was literally nothing else on. And that was in the days, right, where we had, you know, 12 channels in my <laughs> home. And that was the best choice. That's what I saw. Um, you know, like I I, I know, uh, you know, uh, Leonard Nimoy, like the originals. Yeah, I'm feeling like uh, I should know more, but I don't. But there you go. Well, beam me up. Uh, let's see. <laughs> so we're talking about conversion today. Let's start with the basics. Um, what is conversion to Judaism? What's the process and the basis for that process? And how does it actually work in our community today? So it's actually a very complicated question. One that in a way is it's loaded and actually divisive in a way, right? That when we think about becoming a Jew today, what comes to mind is that there's two things when somebody wants to become Jewish. One is about identity and the other is about status. So if somebody feels Jewish, feels connected, loves the culture, loves the food, maybe even loves Jewish idea of God, and of course there are multiple Jewish ideas of God, then they might say, oh, I want to I join the Jewish people. But just because they identify in that way, or just because they have a Jewish parent or a Jewish grandparent, doesn't mean that they necessarily have the status of being Jewish. Having the status is really based on a group of people saying, that person is who we consider to be a Jewish person, or we, as this body, as this organized group, consider that person to be Jewish. So when somebody wants to join, they are also thinking about what part of the Jewish community do they want to join? Who's going to accept them as Jewish? And what are the obligations and responsibilities, commitments that are connected to that? So when I think about, first of all, how somebody converts to Judaism, we have to also remember that Judaism, certainly today, isn't actively trying to get more Jews. And if that was our business, if we've been trying to you know, make sure that there are tons of Jews around, then we are awful at that business. So traditionally, somebody who wanted to become Jewish had to really do it for what we think of as altruistic reasons. As early as the Talmud, there are discussions of that, of how is somebody meant to be treated if they want to be a part of the Jewish people? And are there limits to that commitment? And even in the Talmud already, there are ideas that we see there around if somebody wants to join, but there seems to be a reason, a a motive that is anything other than wanting to be close to God, right? The Jewish idea of God. If there's any other reason, any other benefit, then one of the ways of thinking about it is that that perhaps the uh, conversion is void, right? If you are going to benefit in any way, other than just becoming a part of the relationship that, that the Jewish people has with God, with Hashem, then it doesn't count. So that's not really the reality today for most denominations, but it is still a very important one. And we see that actually in particular in the Orthodox community, where still today, and you can go and check it out on like Chabad.org or Eishat Torah, 
And um, I was actually looking at one today where there was an ask the rabbi in particular. So when we think about like, what is the number one motivation for people to convert today? Often we see that somebody who is not Jewish is dating somebody who is Jewish. And that is a reason for them to want to convert. Certainly in my in my work at Bethsedek, I have met many people for whom um, they're converting without you know, having a Jewish partner. Um, but that is still seems to be like, at least outside the Orthodox community, a significant motivating factor for why people want to join the Jewish people. And in the Orthodox community, that is generally frowned upon. There are some um, approaches and some actually some some big names in the Orthodox rabbinical community of the 20th century that propose that it is okay actually for somebody who is dating a Jewish person to convert, um, mostly because the Jewish partner then becomes more connected to their Judaism through going through that journey mm-hmm. together with mm-hmm. their um, non-Jewish um, partner. But yet today, it really is frowned upon within the Orthodox community. So something we've encountered a little bit in the Star Trek episodes that we watched this month is that cultures can blur the lines a little bit when it comes to what it means to be in or out, like you were talking about before. Can you talk to us a little bit about what conversion means in terms of belief versus community participation versus peoplehood? Jewishness is really like a big mishmash between religion, ethnicity, nationality, tribe, culture, all different things. And it doesn't really fit so neatly into like a Christian made label of like religion and what it means to convert to a religion. So so it's really interesting actually that you put it that way, because I, I actually believe that when it comes to conversion for most mainstream denominations of Judaism, it in fact actually gets tied to the religion more than anything else, Mm. right? So when I said before about identity versus status, when somebody converts into Judaism, they actually, most of the time, now there are exceptions, like if you convert through humanist Judaism, then God can come out of the picture. But for all the other denominations, it is that denomination through whom you are converting. And so you really have to be in line with the values and the norms of that denomination. So, you know, the questions about what God is, how we understand God, Jewish practices and observances really become a focus. And so I've worked with many conversion candidates. So people who are choosing to be Jewish with or without having a Jewish partner already, who are committing to keeping Shabbat and keeping kosher. And uh, some of them are choosing to, you know, get involved in mikvah experiences. They're taking Jewish life really seriously and they're learning Hebrew. And where sometimes they struggle, though, is really that, that piece about, about God, especially when it's somebody who is converting with a Jewish partner, right? They're buying into it. They buy into the system. They want to join the Jewish people in that way. They want to build the Jewish family in a Jewish home which, by the way, converting is not the only way to build a Jewish family in a Jewish home. There are other ways to do that. You could remain not Jewish and still be the mother or father of a Jewish family, but they're choosing to do it. And they feel that the traditions and the values and the laws really enrich their lives. But sometimes where they do get stuck is with that piece about God. One of the ways in which we make it really difficult is that there isn't even really one answer about what God is in Jesus. Mm-hmm. I bet if you, you know, three of us have a conversation about what's the God that you believe in, or as I like mm-hmm. to ask it, what's the God you don't believe in? Especially when people tell me they don't believe in God, because maybe we, I also don't believe in that God. But you have to come into the Jewish people through that relationship as well. So through Bethsedek, all the conservative synagogues here in Toronto work together and sustain them in the Reformed community. 
where if somebody wants to convert through the conservative movement and they reach out to somebody at that tzedek, basically their experience is that they take a course for about a year where there are um, students who are connected to other conservative synagogues also in the course. They all do it collectively. They then have a sponsoring rabbi or mentor. So I, although I'm not ordained as a rabbi, sometimes I'll play that role of a mentor for them. And uh, we'll meet usually about once a month, sometimes more often than that, really to like talk about how the journey is going, how they're integrating all the learning, where their theology is at, what they're believing, how their praying is going. And then um, in addition to that, so the course, spending time with us, and then they actually have to like immerse themselves into Jewish life and live mm-hmm. it, right? And they have to go to shul and they have to start keeping kosher and they, you know, have to start bringing Shabbat in. And depending on the cultures they come from, that's really, could be really complicated. Or if they work in which they're, they're used to working on Saturdays, that's a challenge. And so we try to help them through that journey. And it is so beautiful and such a blessing to be able to be, you know, in that with them. And especially when there's couples involved, to be able to like really work with them as they're grappling through this together and trying to figure out what their Jewish future is going to look like. Because what, you know, you you both have asked this question, like, what is this really about in terms of converting? The way I think about it is that when somebody converts to Judaism, what they are doing is joining the destiny of the Jewish people. They are saying that I am going to join along with all the other Jews here and their future is my future. And similarly, and this is what the part I think could also be tricky for people, is that they're also joining the history of the Jewish people. So they're taking on the future, our destiny, but also our history. And there's like a encounter that needs to happen to work you know, effectively in the way that we would, we would want it to. In fact, I was mentioning before that in... Uh, Traditionally, even you see it in the, in the Talmud already, that when somebody wants to convert, one of the things that would be said to them is basically the bait deen. So the, the end of the process, once you finish all the learning and you do all that and you're living your life basically as a Jew already, the final step is you go in front of a bait deen, the tribunal of rabbis, who test you and see if your commitment is true. In the conservative movement here, we also make somebody write an essay before that, where they're really writing down all their ideas and about their journey. And then they, at the very end, they go to the mikvah. And so traditionally, what the rabbis were supposed to say, again, even in the time of the Talmud, they would say to the prospective Jew, this Jew by choice, they would remind them, you know, there's so much anti-Semitism out there. You know that now... You know, you are bringing yourself into a situation where you might suffer because you are Jewish. They would also say, and you know what? On a theological basis, in terms of your relationship with God, until now you had no obligation to perform any commandments, Jewish command, like of the 613 commandments, right? Maybe the Noahide laws, but that's it. Now, if you break Shabbat, it's severe, it's significant. You know, now you're in trouble. So before you could, you know, you could do those things. For people who aren't Jewish, they don't have to follow those rules. But now you're bringing yourself into it. So both you are bringing yourself into the risk of being a part of the Jewish people. And right now, you know, as we're having this conversation, we're noticing a real rise in anti-Semitism and a lot of people, you know, feeling unsafe as Jews right now. And so I go huge kudos to anybody who wants to join the Jewish people and to both join our history and our destiny at this time. And it is 
such an honor to be able to be with somebody on that journey and to support. Despite every obligation we have to the contrary, I, I still see lots of situation where Jews by choice are made to feel like outsiders in Jewish spaces. The episodes that we watched, and, and they're not about conversion to Judaism, it's always symbolic either from the show or us reading into it, and, and we're watching too with a, a lot of Klingon stuff. The episodes place a lot of emphasis on ritual and on individuals who might formalistically accept others into their community, um, but in, in practice put up a lot of barriers to it. So what are things that Jewish communities can do to try to make uh, their own spaces more inclusive for people who converted and their families? Obviously, um, we've all been thinking a lot this day, anyone who's involved with Jewish communal leadership around the question of diversity and how do we allow for Jews with different backgrounds to really feel connected, right? So traditionally, when somebody converts, you are not allowed to even refer to them as a convert anymore. We don't talk about it, right? We're not supposed to talk about it. And so what we are instead meant to do is just to treat them um, like a Jew. In fact, there's a traditional approach that we really get from the Rambam, from Maimonides, that the way we treat somebody who converts is meant to even supersede the way we treat our own parents, right? That it's, we have such an obligation that that comes first. And then actually the idea is that in the Torah, there's both an obligation of um, not harming the ger, the convert. Lotone is the language in the Torah. And in addition, loving your neighbors, you love yourself, which is generally thought of as like a connection to caring for other Jews. And so you have both of those pieces, the person who both joined and has this diverse background, that we might have this reflex of treating them differently, and we're specifically meant to not. So we both have to love them as one of our own. And also there's this other lotase of a, uh, a negative commandment to ensure that we don't harm them in any way. And I think it's a, it, it's a good guidepost for us as we think about how we, how we treat them. Oh. You know, so, way, so ways of doing it, one is to not other them. And as I was mentioning before, just as we're really trying to be thoughtful about how we allow for diverse voices within the Jewish community, people with diverse backgrounds to really have opportunities to lead, to be seen, to feel comfortable. I think that people who convert, you know, really fit into that. At the same time, I mentioned this, this rule, you're not supposed to like call them a convert. But I also think that in this moment of history, especially like thinking about where I'm situated, working in the conservative and living in the conservative Jewish world, one thing that's really important for me also is to not negate their history, mm. right? And so I think that's a really important balance. I really believe that we have to fully embrace them as Jews, that they're joining the destiny and the history of the Jewish people. And at the same time, it would be cruel to expect them to completely cut themselves off from the families that they um, originally came from. There's actually halakha, Jewish laws, full of discussion around whether somebody could, who is a Jew by choice, are they permitted to say Kaddish for their parents who aren't Jewish? Or are they allowed to make a mishaberach, a prayer for um, healing for someone who's not Jewish. Those kinds of things come up in halakha. The idea is that you've cut yourself off sort of from those people. You're choosing a new life, a new God, a new life. 
I, I struggle with that. I think that that is a part of who they are. And yeah. when people come, when I meet someone, they are the collection of experiences that they've had that's, that's standing in front of me. And I want to, I want to, and I need to honor that whole person and all those experiences. They're making this choice, but someone who chooses to become Jewish and is now Jewish can still be with family members as they are celebrating holidays of, um, you know, of a different faith. And that's what we do as families and the families are diverse and we can still be with each other. But it, but what I say to them is, but when you're with them, when they're celebrating Christmas, you're not celebrating Christmas. You're just with your parents or your kids are with their grandparents who are celebrating Christmas. And that's a part of honoring your mother and father. I know that you're someone who's been brought up in the Orthodox community like me, and now you're serving a conservative community. But a huge issue there is the the stigma that converts carry in, in the Orthodox community. So how exactly do you navigate helping someone through the process of conversion in a conservative community and also informing them of the, the realities that they might face in an Orthodox community if they tried to integrate there? So Chava, I think you're actually talking about two things that are coming up. So one is that it sounds like you're suggesting that in the Orthodox community, there is already a stigma sort of around somebody who converts. And I think we see that sometimes around like how easy it is for them to get a shida, right? To find someone to marry and whether, you know, that it might be frowned upon to marry this person who converted because they converted, which I, I have to say goes completely against the loss directly from the Torah. Of course, of, yeah. At Hagoy Latone, right? Like you are not allowed to treat this person badly. And it comes up many times in the Torah. So anybody who takes that approach or when, if that's, I mean, that stigma unfortunately does exist, but that is, I would say, a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name and just a bad reality. And, and I think we should all be fighting against that within the communities that we live. I think the other piece, though, which exists, and because, as, as I mentioned, that people can join both the identity and the status. Yeah. If you're joining in terms of the status of the Jewish people, and which means that the conservative movement gave you status in this case, you converted through a conservative Beitian, conservative tribunal in a conservative process with a conservative synagogue that you're now a part of. The issue is what happens if you then want to marry somebody who has an Orthodox rabbi, or now you find yourself actually practicing within the Orthodox community, and that's where you feel most connected, or your theology now you're realizing actually is more aligned with that. Yeah. And what, you know, what happens if they want, you know, an Orthodox rabbi most likely won't do the wedding or won't do your kids' futures b'nai mitzvahs. Right, right. And especially if the mother is the one who converted, then that's really, you know, an Orthodox community where the issue would be. And again, the status of that family and those kids um, can be problematic. So I, I actually worked with an awesome guy, a conversion student who converted through worked with us at Betzedek and through the conservative movement. And then through his journey, I knew this from the beginning of his journey that this would happen, but he only found out a little bit later that he would really want to be a part of the Orthodox community. And he's actually a Jew of color and, you know, they're converted first with us. And then he converted through the Orthodox community as well. For him, that's what he needed to do to make sure that his values and the lifestyle he wanted to have really aligned. 
We also tell people that, you know, that there is a challenge also with the state of Israel mm-hmm. in terms of whether or not they're going to accept our conversions. If somebody wants to make Aliyah, there's no problem. They can make Aliyah having um, converted through the conservative movement or through the reform movement or through the orthodox movement or reconstructionist movement. The challenge becomes will be accepted if they move to Israel and then want to do something that requires the rabbinate to be involved with it, like marriage or even death could be an issue in terms of where you get buried. So that's something that other denominations outside the Orthodox movement have really been struggling with and working on within Israel to try to make some change. I think we're like a generation away from just the government of Cyprus taking over the Ministry of the Interior in Israel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There. And that and that's that's the crazy reality, right? So you could get um because Israel doesn't really have civil marriage, um you can, you know, you get civilly married somewhere else and then you could do your Jewish ceremony in Israel. Yaakov, we're almost out of time today, but maybe before we go, you can just tell us one interesting story, something you've learned along the way as you've been a part of the Toronto conservative conversion classes for all these years now. Oh, <laughs> this is what I might say. Okay, we might not end on this. Uh, I, I just, I love like when people are involved in the learning process, you know, there's the there's just, uh, some really funny things that happen. So one day a conversion student that I was working with, it was actually a, a conversion couple both of them were Jewish and both of them were converting together and the and they were already married. And the husband calls me one day. He's like, you know, you know, we're having a really, you know, intimate conversation. And he says to me, I'm really struggling with, um, you know, with most of it's going great, but I'm struggling with one rule. I don't understand this rule where you're not allowed to have sex on Shabbat. That's me. And Josh, I like that you're laughing because, right, like we know that in fact, that's not a rule at all, right? That's, there's no rule like that. If you can't have sex on Shabbat, in fact, like some people talk about it as being like a double mitzvah. But here we have this somehow, if you read somewhere, that you are not allowed to have sex on Shabbat. And this was for him, like he didn't have an issue with theology or anything, this guy. He was following Kashrut. He, you know, he got, he had a bris, he got circumcised as like a 45 year old man, no oh problem. God. But he was really getting hung up with this, like, no having sex on the weekend. So <laughs> we uh, we dealt with that, thank God. Um, <laughs> Problem solved. There is a... <laughs> exactly. Problem solved. There is a, <laughs> a line from Parshat Nitzavim, so towards the end of um, Dvarim, towards the end of Deuteronomy, where it says, All of you are here on this day. And one of the questions, that, and, and, it, and it goes on and the Pasuk says, even those of you who are not are a part of the covenant. And so a question that comes up is like, who are these people that aren't there on that day that are a part of that covenant? And one of the answers that's given is Jews by choice. People who are not, uh, who are not born yet and who um, have not become yet a part of the Jewish people yet their souls somehow have always been connected. And I love that idea, that if you're choosing to come and be a part of our people, um, and it is a serious commitment, it comes yeah. both with you know some risk, but I believe it also comes with lots of joy. I think we're so good at building vibrant communities and bringing meaning to life. And if you are choosing to be a part of our history and our destiny, I love this idea that in fact, your soul was always with us. Uh, thanks for including. Have fun. <laughs> Jakob, thanks for joining us.
Lorelai, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a 42-year-old writer living in Los Angeles. I've been married for more than 10 years to a nice Jewish boy. Uh, we have an eight-year-old son. Being Jewish was not a necessity for marrying him, but like doing Jewish stuff always was. I was raised Episcopalian, I should say, but sort of like disinterestedly, like, you don't have to believe this stuff. Because for all the normal U.S. politics reasons, I was not a big fan of religion, or at least, you know, Christianity in retrospect. And so I didn't really trust religion, and I didn't really see myself converting at the time of our marriage. The first step into Judaism was taking Yiddish classes. That was my gateway drug. I did a couple of years of that, and you get into Yiddishkeit as well, like the, the cultural stuff, obviously. Then I had my son. One result of that is I started doing Shabbat because it was an excuse to have a glass of wine and it was an excuse to make bread. And then I started getting drawn into Jewish communities online and more and more I just started feeling like I could kind of identify with this community, but I wasn't part of it. And I always felt like I needed to be careful not to be part of it. Then like two Rosh Hashanahs ago, back when we were all allowed to have Rosh Hashanah with our families, I went to my husband's aunt Shul in Santa Barbara and opened the Siddur and I thought, I would like to know what's going on here. So I took a class. I went to American Jewish University here in LA and took a class and it's a conversion class. And when the rabbi met with me, he told me, you don't need to believe in God to convert to Judaism. And I was like, great, where's the mikveh? Can you tell me about your earliest memories of Star Trek? Oh my goodness. Um, back in the 80s, I would watch it with my brother on the reruns, of course, of the original series. So when they, the next generation started, it would have been 10 that year. I um, watched that. I enjoyed it. But when Deep Space Nine started, I really loved Major Akira. And, and also Instant Row before that on, um, on The Next Generation. But I think in retrospect, what was going on there is those were some of the first women I'd seen on TV who were allowed to be angry. You titled your article, I couldn't join Starfleet, so I converted to Judaism. Tell me how you reached that conclusion. <laughs> I also in 2019 left my job and um, in 2020, I especially throughout the Trump administration, especially in 2020, like we're really seeing a lot of values things play out in American national politics and all the major news events of 2020, I guess, sort of, they, they all had moral dimensions. Thinking about the pandemic, thinking about rights to uh, freedom versus rights to life, like the financial scarcity of healthcare, with, like vaccine, like mask refuse nicks, and then the, the, the summer of 2020 and racial protests and the, the way that those were handled, the poor way those were handled by a lot of the authorities who were meant to be handling them. And I'm also, I was an, an, an immigration reporter. And being an immigration reporter under the Trump administration requires just a nonstop litany of horrifying information, just one after another. It was just, it was both intentionally cruel and at the very outer bounds of what the law might possibly allow. And it just, it felt for a long time like nobody really had any moral grounds anymore. And Right after Trump was elected, I started watching a lot of DS9 again, and I think I did it because I was just desperate for a world in which smart people wanted to do the right thing. Um, and we're in charge, and that was not the world I was living in, and it made me sad. So against that backdrop, here I am exploring Judaism, and Judaism offers a great deal of moral guidance, a culture that places a great deal of emphasis on learning, and I'm even honestly like rule following knowledge and learning and 
you know, caring about what's morally right. All of these things were things that I was not getting in my secular life that Judaism was giving me. So eventually I realized that if I wanted to be part of this community, like I could just, I mean, in, 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 in my fantasy Starfleet world, I can join Starfleet and that can be my job and I can run around the universe trying to make things better for people. But that's not a world I live in. Instead, I have to do it differently. And one of the ways that I felt that I wanted to explore that was by embracing Judaism. It seems to me that there's a lot of times in Star Trek that the show has thought about um, the idea of a culture adopt, being adopted into a culture, you know, Nog in Starfleet, uh, or, or Saru leaving his planet and being welcomed in, um, that kind of pr- perspective of the outsider becoming the insider. Do, do those kinds of stories resonate with you? What's really cool about that is you can be a full member of Starfleet. You can be part of the Federation and still be who you are. Um, in the same way that Jews can still be ourselves and we can be part of our larger cultural and, and political communities. Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews. Um, should we talk about the Deep Space Nine episode, Worf and Dax getting married? Yeah, uh, the episode called You're Cordially Invited. Cordially Invited. This is such a chill and relaxed episode. It comes right on the heels of like seven straight war episodes, like the grittiest of the gritty everything's terrible and they're just like we're gonna have a big party and i'm sure that was done on purpose and it's very good episode timing (laughs) very jewy too wedding in the middle of everything seven days of (laughs) seven episodes of mourning and then they're they're back alexander is in this one yeah they kind of fudge the timeline a little because i think alexander should only be like nine years old but whatever they're aliens or i guess he's three quarters (laughs) alien he grows faster i don't know if that's klingon aging or tv aging but it's fine like (laughs) alexander was not an interesting character when he was a nine-year-old playing a two-year-old on Next Gen. Uh, and <laughs> I think, at least as a teenager, he is an interesting character. But, oh my god, Worf is such a colossally bad father. <laughs> oh my god, so bad. Like He, he is the worst the dad in the dad Alpha ever. Quadrant. <laughs> yep. He, like, sends him away. Ugh. He really does all of the quintessential bad dad things to do. Jadzia says to him at the beginning, it may be a long time before you see him again. And I know she's referencing the fact that there's a war a war going on. But but also Worf hadn't seen him for like the preceding six years of his own <laughs> volition. <laughs> I think he just sees him as like, oh, I don't want to deal yeah, with this. Which I also think so, is how the writers also- saw him. <laughs> Exactly. I was just going to say that. I think that's exactly how the writers saw him, too. And they're like, oh, this is convenient. We'll bring him back for Warp's <laughs> weird bachelor party. At one point, he says to one of the other characters, don't ask me. I can barely say my name in Klingon. And uh, that felt like, like particularly <laughs> Jewish to me. Of like, hmm, I yeah, can read it phonetically, true. and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's like really good conversion stuff in this. Uh, what you'd make of all that? There's really good conversion stuff, and there's also just like really good, like I feel like family in general mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, totally. 
joining someone else's family and like trying to fit in and not being able to lift the buckets and stuff, you know, it's tough. I thought there was something like pretty Jewish about the way her conversion happens. I mean, like Cyrilla obviously is like very adversarial, but like there's this sort of notion in Judaism that converts are like, like welcomed, but not sought after. She's definitely not made to feel like welcome, but this like, permissible but it's not really what we go and do of of which i'm like i do wonder how much of that was just like diaspora survival because jews predominantly lived in christian and islamic lands where you would be put to death for proselytizing so so maybe that was like more of a defense mechanism but but i think it's an interesting way to go there yeah and i actually think that like i mean it depends on the community but i don't even think that converts are that welcomed like not welcome before they convert is what i yeah. mean so like if once they've converted then usually it's more welcoming but before that at least i think in orthodox communities they're like no you shouldn't <laughs> turn back now save yourself <laughs> i mean as yakov was saying basically there's this one point where sorella like gets mad at jadzia she's like if you're gonna use replicated yarhama candles at least don't make them so <laughs> obvious and like jadzia is meant to be the, the good one there and yet i was thinking like if, if somebody walked in with their like like faux torah scroll but they made it in the printer instead of getting a sofa <laughs> to do it i would get like a really weird vibe from it again this gets into like the being welcomed into a tradition versus like appropriating it line, which I think is sometimes hard to navigate. And there is like a concept in some Jewish communities that like a ritual object should be as beautiful as possible because it's like serving a higher purpose. Like the idea that, um, that like a menorah, even though like a kosher menorah can be made of basically anything, like an ideal menorah is made out of silver because it like shows your dedication to the mitzvah. And, and I definitely see a lot of that huh. in, in like the Klingon stuff where they take like the ritualization of it very seriously. <laughs> Yeah, wow, I actually didn't know that. It makes a lot of sense, though, um, in Judaism, because, like, so many things that don't need to be, like, have no, no basis in halacha, really, are, like, the Kiddush cup, for example, is usually an extremely ornate piece of metal, and all kinds of things like that. Huh, cool. The wharf is very much, like, just very intense and at some point they're even like he gets misty-eyed talking about klingon rituals and i think that there are a lot of jewish people that are like that in fact i think you are yeah a little bit (laughs) i like that the conversion process for jedzia it's like it's not enough for her to just have an ideology or a belief she has to like demonstrate her knowledge and be welcomed in and that that like takes some work martok says like if someone wishes to join us uh they must honor our traditions and prove themselves worthy and like that's not the particular standard that judaism sets out but there is this balance of like it's not just what you believe there's a process of of entering and being welcomed into a community of people yeah they talk about worthiness a lot though and i actually think that's pretty not oh yeah like i don't think i don't think that like there's anything like that mm-hmm. in Judaism. Like, uh, we don't see people as some people as worthy and some people as not to be Jewish. It's really like a desire thing and like how you, how you f- your faith is. Right. Um, which is something that I actually admire about the conversion process. It's not like, oh, do you have like this and this? It's like, 
do you believe? Mm-hmm. Sorella even says, like, in our house, you'd be an alien, an outsider. And, like, Gare, I think the word that is commonly used for, for convert does sort of mean, like, outsider, stranger, which I actually think is, like, a distortion because the early rabbis wanted to take rules that were meant to apply to foreigners living among you and like limit their application to converts. Um, but it's a, it's a nice little parallel there too. And, and another place I thought Dax was really offside was like, she didn't understand the purpose of the, of the history exercise, right? Like she, she did a thing that we do all the time on her show. Like, like I just did a second ago and be like, ah, actually your great grandmother isn't from the imperial line because this secondary source says that this historical thing happened, which is like very interesting. And, and that history is like part of who you are and like important to learn. But she misses the point that she's like supposed to be. Um, showing her knowledge of like a received tradition. Yeah. And like, just because, uh, I mean, something that we do definitely as Jews is like our, our narrative story about Egypt. Like, just because that's not necessarily factually based doesn't mean that that's not our narrative story and doesn't mean that that's not what converts say when they convert is I am now a Jew and I left Egypt with everybody else. <laughs> mm hmm. When Lex Rothberg was on our show a little while back, he, he talked about how like, the the fact that the exodus from Egypt didn't happen makes it a more interesting story <laughs> that that we chose <laughs> to tell us ourselves this story of like being an oppressed people and being liberated from slavery and have that be like our central national moment is more interesting than like this bad thing happened to us and let's remember it. Yeah, it's it's true. Like our founding story is to really be like remember that you were a slave so be nice mm -hmm. what do you think of the role of of like sorella and like klingon women and sort of like this split i wouldn't quite call it a matriarchy but she definitely has like her domain yeah i never really noticed that in klingon culture before like women are tough or like klingon women are tough but i, I never really saw it that like they were head of house still seemed like a patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. Like you would imagine that the the high council would have more women on it than if it was really like this. But it was it was interesting. I I liked it. If you add this episode together with the one where Core comes back the last time, there's like an interesting class distinction that comes out because we know Martok is like this like farm-born peasant and Sorella's mm -hmm. this like imperial dynasty. <laughs> and if you start to piece them together, it's like, oh, that's that's part of why he this peasant is the general now because he's got the he's got the rich and powerful wife, um, right? Which is like a side to Martok that I don't think was was really shown before. Yeah, that's true. Let me ask you this: so after this episode, like Dax is very much part of the house of Martok. And we see in like season seven that Worf thinks of her as a Klingon, whatever that means. And yet like Dax of all people is all about like her own identity because she holds centuries of Trill tradition within right. herself. Do you think there's like a tendency in the Jewish community that if somebody converts, like the Jewishness subsumes their whole identity of themselves and their descendants. And and I should point out here, like, you have some ancestors who are not Jewish. And like, I've never gotten the impression 
from you that like, even though you might have a relationship with particular family members that like coming from where they came from was like part of your identity and part of like who you think of yourself as. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so my, my grandmother was a convert uh, on my mother's side. So testy cause that's the like Orthodox line of, like Jewishness follows the mother. But yeah, my my grandmother was a convert and she basically converted because of what exactly you're saying is that my grandfather wanted her to be Jewish and like his family wanted her to be Jewish, even though she was more religious than him afterwards. Like she just liked doing traditions. It wasn't like she pushed holidays and stuff like that more than him. But yeah, that 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 completely took over the family. Like they were completely raised Jewish. There was absolutely no like I think she was Protestant before. No Christian culture. Um, something that was interesting, though, is that like my aunt, my half aunt from my grandmother's first marriage, that first marriage was not with someone Jewish. So my half aunt is Christian and is very religious. Mm. So she's she's actually Catholic because uh, she married someone Catholic, and we are connected. And like I know her, her daughter and her grandkids. Um, and I see them as my cousins, but our lives are just extremely different in that way. Like one time we visited and it was around Christmas and I was like, wow, <laughs> it's so shiny and sparkly. It's just very, very different and not at all uh, how I identify, even though that's like definitely part of my family history. My grandmother was descended from British colonizers as well as Greeks. Hmm. Yeah, her father was Greek. Her father was a bootlegger, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, he used to pull uh, alcohol across the border. <laughs> she, she would talk about it sometimes. My grandmother was a very cool lady because she lived through a lot of things. She was born in 1916. Um, and so she lived through the First World War, Second World War. She, I remember she would tell us about um, how she used to build warships uh, for the second world wow. war she was like because maine is like a portland in maine the like biggest city in yeah maine, it was shipbuilding. Uh, is a very deep yeah it's a very deep port so rosie the riveter that was my <laughs> oh my god um yeah straight up anyway she met my grandfather he owned a drugstore and she fell in love immediately <laughs> and Aww. that's that's how she tells it um and <laughs> and then she had to convert so she converted through the conservative movement. And so this actually posed an issue for my mother uh, when she, my mother moved to Israel when she was like right after college. So my mother actually had to convert as well because she wanted to be Orthodox. Bit of a, bit of a roller coaster of a time with the conversion in my family. Yeah. I actually didn't know about any of this until I was 14. Yeah, so as you were saying, the Jewish culture really took over in that respect. I do think that if it were like maybe, I mean, not to say that like the Protestant white culture of the States isn't a particularly forceful culture, but like I do think if it were another culture that more was interesting. more forceful, <laughs> more, more forceful, yeah, more interesting and more like desiring to keep their traditions um, and like hold on to that as something important, I think it would have been different. I think that happens probably a lot more now in interfaith homes. It's it's much more interesting to have like actually keep the traditions of both. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was not like that there. <laughs> I feel like this whole politics of in and out and like identity versus status was like an entirely 
avoidable, unnecessary, and frankly, like, should have been seen as inevitable consequence of bad decision making. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, in the 20th century, and really, this is a product of the 20th century, it is not older than this, like, orthodox and conservative institutions withheld conversions as a sort of, like, cudgel against intermarriage, especially, like, child conversions, which which are, like, very easy Jewishly. Like, there isn't, like, a period of study. Like, for infants, it's, like, a super easy process. Like, they just, like, they have to affirm it of their own free will when they come of age at, like, B-mitzvah. And different choices could have could have had different outcomes. Like, there's no halachic obstacle whatsoever to if just, like, the community had said en masse in the beginning of the 20th century, like, oh, when there's a Jewish father and a Gentile mother and they want to raise their children Jewish, we welcome them in and convert the children. And and then this whole, like, status versus identity nonsense that we have now where, where like, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews, especially in North America, who think of themselves as Jewish, who want to be part of Jewish communities and like are told that on some notion of status that someone else believes in that they're, they're like not Jewish in the right way. And it's like, I don't know, it's so unwelcoming and like such a unnecessary divide. It makes me like really angry. And I I don't know, I, I don't know what to do with it, but it's created this, like this, like, I think almost permanent divide in some Jewish communities. Um, And I don't know what it'll look like in the future. I, I think that it, it it does create a permanent divide because it makes it makes intermarrying among Jews even become questionable for Orthodox people because they're like, well, are they really Jewish? I don't really know because um, maybe they converted by uh, a different denomination and they just don't accept right. that. Um, and that is, it's it's very bizarre because I see conversion as like completely not. Like the things that I think about for conversion are not really religious that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's because I don't view my Jewish identity as particularly religious. So to me, it's like you can't tell somebody who has Jewish ancestry that they're not Jewish. There's, um, there's a clip from an Israeli talk show and I forget the name of it. The host is explaining to like three foreign workers that what, what conversion is and the absurdity of how it works in Israel. First, you must become very, very Jewish. But then if you want to be regular Jewish like me after the rabbi's not looking, then you do whatever you want. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, it doesn't void your conversion, even though that's something that they like tell Orthodox kids. Like, if somebody converts Orthodox and they don't keep the traditions afterwards, like, it's considered kind of void and that's just not no. true like no it's not once you're converted you are a jew and that's it mm-hmm. um uh should we go to afi Komen? there was uh, i wrote down a note basically circumcision <laughs> and i don't even remember what oh when they cut their hands Oh, yes, yes. So they cut their hands. And I was like, that's basically what circumcision is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my (laughs) (laughs) opinion. What's yours, Josh? 
Mine is they talk about the the path of Kalhaya. It's like a path of clarity and a mental spiritual journey before the wedding. Um, and there's actually like a Kabbalistic custom that's like pretty similar to that of treating the day of a wedding like a personal Yom Kippur with fasting and atonement. And like part of the purpose of that is uh, is for mental clarity. Though I don't think you have to sit with all the food in the room like they did. Although I guess if you know they're setting up for the reception, probably. <laughs> Um. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to Star Trek and the Jews. Hebrew school homework is a little bit different. So um, I'm going to throw this in the show notes, but we are going to be reading, yes, reading uh, the novella Creative Coupling, which can be found in a part of a book for Starfleet Corps of Engineers, which is also called Creative Coupling. So we're reading the the creative coupling within Creative Coupling. And we're reading a short story called An Easy Fast from Tales of the Captain's Table. And if that sounds like a lot, then don't worry, because we're doing that in two months. So you have a lot of time to find those books. Um, They're in lots of libraries. There's eBooks. Or just go and buy it, because the authors are really cool people who are going to be on our show. So we will be back uh, to talk about David Gould. We'll have something in July, but it'll be a little bit different with no homework. Thank you so much to everyone who helped make today possible. Our guest, Jakob Frichter, my friend and teacher of many years. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Yaakov, um, just look him up. He's at Beth Zedek. He's a really interesting person to learn from. Thank you to Genevieve Cohen and Lorelai Laird for sharing their stories with us. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening.